When there's disputes hanging over their head, it'd be crippling. I've seen it destroy families and relationships and just because of the stress and anxiety of, of a dispute, you can see it cripple businesses as well. So it's really about trying to resolve them. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 136 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Tax disputes with the ATO do not count as the most pleasant life experience for most. So how can we avoid them and if we can't, how should we manage them? Andrew Henshaw is a tax lawyer with Velocity Legal in Sydney and so perfect to ask for advice. I wanted to know what flags the ATO's attention. When we're talking about tax disputes, there's got to be an initial spark that starts the dispute. And usually what that is, is, is something's flagged the ATO's attention. That could be a whole raft of things. State revenue office bodies and the ATO uh, do talk as well. So let's say you did a little property development and all those transfers of land and all that information that's gone through the state revenue office, that information can go to the ATO. So let's say you did a big subdivision or something, didn't report anything in your tax return or reported it as a capital gain, they can have that information and compare the two. You could be involved in, one example I've had is you could be involved in a publicly reported transaction because you've dealt with a public company. So I had one client who actually sold their business to a public company and that was a publicly reported transaction. So we're actually contacted by the ATO before the end of the income year about how we were going to treat that transaction. You could be, one other and interesting one is, is rogue advisors. So the ATO have had a dispute with someone else and have found a rogue advisor who's sort of been spruiking a particular scheme. I've had this happen where the ATO sort of traced back through the rogue advisor to all the other clients of that advisor and gotten people that way. There's a whole range of different ways um, and the ATO's powers and they're getting really good at data matching, getting information from all kinds of sources and yeah, they're a pretty well-oiled machine these days. Is there one particular one? Is mm. there one that sparks the ATO's, you know, Prob- is yeah. there one trigger that is more prominent than the others? Yeah, the Austrac one is probably the biggest one I've had because there's been quite a lot of residency-related disputes. That's one that's an immediate flag. So what will often happen in those Austrac ones is let's say money's been transferred back and the taxpayer hasn't lodged returns in Australia. What will happen most of the times is the ATO will write to the taxpayer and say, you've transferred this money, we've picked it up, and you haven't lodged returns. And unless you do something in the next 30 days or so, we're going to issue a default assessment So the full amount transferred, we're going to say that that's income and we're going to apply 75% penalty on top of that. So it could be a real call to action. That gets people's attention very quickly when when they say that, okay, this is all going to be income and we're going to apply 75% penalty to the tax shortfall. So yeah, that can really get people's attention. And and because that area of law is quite grey on residency, it's one where you can have genuine disputes with the tax office on whether someone is or is not a resident of Australia and what period they became a resident or ceased to be a resident. It's those areas where the law is quite grey that, that it does arise quite a lot. Small business concessions, a lot of queries arise because when you claim the small business concessions, you need to record that on the tax return. For the larger claims for small business concessions, they're routine, but often looked at it. It might just be 
a risk review rather than an audit. I should say that when you do flag the ATO's attention, a lot of the time that will progress to a risk review and what the ATO is doing under a risk review is sort of having a bit of a look under the hood to see that everything checks out or not. From a decision tree perspective, they're thinking, do we need to go to a full audit or is everything okay? It's less than a full-blown audit. It's looking under the hood and seeing are there any material problems or not? If things don't stack up at that stage, then we're going to go to more formal investigation. And if everything sort of checks out more or less, then we'll drop it. Now, it's really important at that stage to treat those really seriously. Sometimes I've had clients who've got those risk reviews and say, oh, it's not an audit. It doesn't sound that serious. They're not issuing amended assessments. You know, I don't really need to worry about this. But My advice is always as soon as you get the risk review, that's an opportunity to look through everything, check out whether everything stacks up or not. If things don't stack up, for instance, let's say you're a tax agent and you've got a new client and they're looking at a transaction from a few years ago that you didn't even advise on and you you realize that it's been done wrong. Let's say they were over the $6 million net asset value threshold for the small business concessions and didn't qualify. It's very clear. That's the point where you've got to advise your client subject to your client saying yes, put your hand up and say the client shouldn't have claimed those, weren't eligible, we acknowledge that there's a tax shortfall. And the reason for doing you'd say, well, what's the point of doing that? Why do we just let the ATO build their own case? The reason for doing that is generally at that early risk review stage, the ATO will usually waive most of the penalties that would apply. It's called a voluntary disclosure. And if a voluntary disclosure is made before an examination commences, the ATO will reduce penalties by 80%. So if the penalty that was going to apply is $500,000, then they'll get reduced to $100,000. So it's a big reduction in penalties. And the reason the ATO do that is is to encourage people to come forward at an earlier stage. It avoids wasting their resources, but it also gets a better result for the taxpayer. If you've got that risk review, it's a good chance to consider, is there any weakness here? Are we completely, we've got no case? Do we have a bit of a case? Are we really strong? And depending on that assessment, that will characterize how you go forward, whether you voluntarily disclose, whether you put in just a robust explanation of what happened, that will determine where you go. The important thing to consider at that time is also the time limits as well that the commissioner is able to go back. So the commissioner can only go back four years unless there's fraud or evasion, typically four years unless there's fraud or evasion. So after that risk review point, if you identify issues that are past that four-year period, then it might be the case that, okay, well, something was done incorrectly, but the commission is not within time unless they're alleging fraud or evasion. So yeah, the risk review is a good opportunity to see, is there anything wrong? Let's disclose it if there is. Let's fight it if there isn't. It's a real good critical juncture because then what happens if you don't satisfy that risk review is you go into full-blown audit territory. They could go for six months, two years, three years. It can be a bit open-ended and that's where you'd see the ATO getting a bit more adversarial, using their formal investigation powers if they need to, so to call for documents or get witness statements and that kind of stuff. So If you're in that audit place, it's not a great place to be in because as a taxpayer, if you're a client, it's this big grey cloud that's hanging over your life and you just want to get it resolved one way or another. It's usually the taxpayer, isn't it? Yeah. Not the tax agent. 
It's usually the taxpayer. Sometimes it will get engaged by the tax agent and that could be because they're concerned about a particular position, whether it was correct or not, but most of the time it will be so the client. The pays the bill, but then they might have a recourse claim against the tax agent if the whole problem was due to incorrect advice. Yeah. To start with, it's the taxpayer who has to pay. Correct, yeah. Yeah, so I've had that situation arise where there was a negligent claim for small business concessions and they were clearly over the $6 million threshold. The calculations were done incorrectly on the basis that a taxpayer only owned 60% of a company. So they only included 60% of the value, but... As a lot of practitioners would know, if you've got more than 40%, you need to include the full value. So they didn't do that and they said, okay, you can claim the small business concessions. So then that got audited, different age at that time, got audited and the tax office formed the view that you weren't eligible for the small business concessions, but also penalties applied on top of that as well. The damage is not that they had to pay tax because they, they, did, they would have done tax anyway. It's, it's not because of the agent's advice that they had to pay tax. They did the sale. They were going to sell anyway. They would have paid tax regardless. Sometimes there's things they could have done differently. But in this case, there's nothing they could have done differently. They would have paid tax. But what the damage is, is the penalties, which would try to get down as low as possible because you've got a duty to mitigate your loss and also the advisor's costs as well. So. so that means the taxpayer then sued the tax agent for the penalties and also for the advisor costs. Yeah, your, your yeah, costs. yeah, correct. And then that's typically would be covered by insurance in most scenarios, yeah. Do most clients engage you <coughs> during the review stage? It's a bit varied, so I'd like it to be in the, in the review stage, but sometimes you get involved a lot later and I guess the later you get involved, the less that can be done to redress things. So my advice is as soon as you get the spark from the ATO, that's the time you should get involved. But a lot of the times it will be handled by a tax agent and it will be when probably things are not going as expected or as smoothly as, as they might have wanted or they just need a bit of help. Yeah, so it could be a bit later on. It could be the ATO has issued a position paper already or they're about to issue a position paper or they've already issued amended assessments. Now what can we do? Can we object to them? Can we go to tribunal or court? So sometimes it will be in the earlier stages, but sometimes it'll be in those later stages as well where and when it's those later stages, there's a lot you've got to do to get up to speed with what's already happened. You know, what communication has, has transpired? What's happened? I need to sort of do a full audit of where we're up to in this yeah advice is definitely earlier is better yeah because Sorry. early earlier you can still do more and there's not so much history yet where you need to go yeah yeah you can control the dialogue a lot more and also if there is an issue it's always better to disclose it earlier it's also relevant to sort of the strategy that's taken and the arguments that are formed as well you're generally free to come up with new arguments later on but it's always better to put all your guns blazing earlier. If you think there's 10 reasons why the ATO is wrong and transaction's okay, you should put all of those up front, not just put one up front and then three quarters of the way through the process, then, okay, oh, by the way, we've got these other ones as well. So it's better to up front, put as much in as you can, put all those reasons on the table, which I can, yeah, that's something that I can assist with. I've got actually one, one quite like that at the moment where we've got multiple reasons why this particular provision should not apply.
The ATO for the last few years, they've introduced a process called in-house facilitation. And what in-house facilitation is, is it's essentially an ATO-driven mediation process. The intention of this is to lessen the amount of disputes that go to court. Litigation is costly and expensive and takes a long time. And to get people together in a room to either resolve the dispute or at least clarify the issues that are in dispute, so narrow the, the scope of the dispute. So what an in-house facilitation is, is it's a process where the taxpayer can at any time put a request in to the facilitation team or an in-house facilitation. And what will happen is that request will go in and the ATO will have a ATO-appointed mediator. So there'll be someone from the ATO, but there'll be a specialist mediator. So they're not just a case officer. It's actually a, someone who's trained to be a mediator. What will generally happen then is that there'll be a mediation or a facilitation as it's called, just another word for mediation, but where the ATO's case officers and either the taxpayer or the taxpayer's representatives will get together, try to clarify the issues and dispute it. It's a good opportunity to have that chance to get in the same room with the people who are making decisions. And that can be useful for a number of reasons. It could be to try to look towards settling where there's a genuine dispute or it could be useful to clarify what the issues are. What are the exact issues in dispute? So can't settle it, at least you can clarify what the ATO's concerns are. So it can be a good way rather than email and letters warfare between lawyers and, and case officers. It can be a good way to sort of get everyone together and talk about the dispute, either clarify the issues in dispute or, or try to come towards a settlement. So that can happen at any stage. It could be an audit or it could be an objection that's lodged. The only real prerequisite to it is that the ATO needs to have formed, the case officers need to have formed a view. So for instance, if you get an track letter, you can't just say, okay, I want to go to mediation because that's not that's not really fair to the ATO. They need to actually be able to form a position before. There's no point mediating before they've actually gotten all the facts and, and formed a position. But it can be used as a good tool in a dispute. It can be sort of, I, I sort of likened it to a bit of a circuit breaker rather than, you know, a dispute goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It can be a bit of a circuit breaker where just butting heads and try to resolve it in a different way. It's, a, it's alternative dispute resolution, essentially. It's called ADR, isn't it? Hmm. Hmm. So in a mediation meeting, mm. you usually have at least four people. You have the case officer, mm. you have the facilitator, you have the client, and then you have the tax lawyer seeing the client. In these meetings, is the facilitator usually the good cop and then the case officer is a bad cop? So is the facilitator usually somebody with quite good people skills who tries to keep everything on friendly tone? Yeah, the mediator's not. They are supposed to be impartial, so they are very much supposed to be the the good cop. I shouldn't say good cop. They are impartial. They are trying to bring people together and form a view. So they stay out of it. They apply mediation principles and skills, and they are very much neutral, even though they're employed by the ATO. Some intermediary that rather than the legal representation and the case officer just just arguing, they could have that that sort of neutral person to sort of control it a little bit more. Mm. You do mention having the client there. That's something to consider with these, whether that's going to be a beneficial thing or a negative thing. And I see. So sometimes you do a mediation without the client. It, it really depends on the circumstances and it's sort of going to be an assessment. It depends on the client as well and the case. So, so if the client is very angry and... 
Yeah, yeah, because from a client's perspective, especially if it's it's an individual rather than a big public company or something, by the time it gets to this facilitation, this dispute might have already been going for two or three years. It's it's always in their head. They may have been sort of mistreated at some stages by the ATO. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. angst and emotion that's built up at that point. It's often better in disputes to approach it from just arguing the evidence and arguing the law and and keeping it fairly impartial and and fairly non-aggressive and non-emotional, sometimes that can be more challenging. I see. So a lot of mediation meetings then just have three people. Yeah. One case officer, the mediator and the tax lawyer. I mean, there'll usually be, there might be two case officers or case officer and a supervisor and a couple of people represent. And it could be the the tax agent and the lawyer from the client side. But, But yes, yeah, yeah. A lot of the time the client won't actually be part of it. In addition to, let's say, in a tax dispute, the ATO is right, the tax that should have been paid and it hasn't been paid. That's called the tax shortfall. But on top of that, there is penalties that can apply. They're based on a percentage of the tax shortfall. So if you were supposed to pay a million dollars of tax and you didn't because you claimed the small business concessions, then if it transpires that, that you should have paid that, then penalties will be worked out based on the tax shortfall. Now, those penalties can range anywhere from 25% up to 95%. It's really based on the culpability of the taxpayer and their agent. So not just the taxpayer, but the taxpayer and their agent. The general rates are either 25%, 50% or 75%. And which one applies is determined based on the behaviour of the taxpayer and the tax agent. So for instance, if there has been a failure to take reasonable care, there's a 25% penalty. But if instead of that, there was uh, recklessness, it's a 50% penalty. Upping it even further, if there's intentional disregard of a tax law, it can be 75%. There can also be a further uplift of 20% in certain circumstances. So if you've hindered the ATO's investigation, there can be an uplift of 20%. And if you're a repeat offender, it can be an uplift of 20%. So Talking about penalties of up to 95% of the shortfall. So there's a lot of money. So a lot of the strategy can be about reducing those penalties. So it's relevant in a dispute because if, if you make a voluntary disclosure, for instance, you can get those penalties down a lot lower and you can also dispute the ATO's categorization of the client's behavior. We could say, no, that wasn't reckless. We took reasonable care. There's no penalties that should apply. So if your conduct was fairly good, but you're still wrong, then no penalties would apply. In other words, if you've taken reasonable care, then no penalties would apply. Having knowledge of the penalties is really valuable in also in an advisory sense, because when you're advising clients, knowing what the penalties are and how they're applied is very relevant because I could say to you, if you take this position, this is what the ATO could do. Or I could say, I'm not sure if that position is correct, but I think there's a decent shot. And I think if I prepare a detailed letter of advice, I think that would show that you've taken reasonable care. So even if the ATO disagrees, no penalties would apply. So it's really relevant to know, not only in the context of the dispute in question, but also in a planning sense about 
whether to take a particular course of conduct or not, knowing what consequences are if, if it goes wrong. So if you did a 20 lot subdivision of land and you didn't get advice about it, then I'd say you'd probably be reckless or you could even be intentionally disregarding the law if you knew that to pay tax on that and you didn't. So, But if it was you went and got advice and the advice said, look, we, we think there's some arguments to say that you're just an investor, um, you know, it's probably 50-50 or you got a shot either way, then that could be taking reasonable care. So if the ATO does disagree and you accept the ATO's position, then at least you probably have no penalties applying. So it's very important. Are a lot of these mediation sessions about penalties? Yeah, I've had one meeting that was just solely about penalties and it was about the ATO had imposed 75% penalties and the commission actually has a power to remit penalties and we were arguing the commissioner should exercise this power to remit penalties. And in this case, they actually remitted all of the penalty down to zero. So it was very, very exceptional circumstances. But yeah, a lot of the times the dispute has moved on from being about the tax shortfall, most likely because we've accepted that the client's original position was wrong and tax shortfall arose, but it's about it's about arguing about the penalties. And, and a lot of those arguments are about, well, that's about arguing about the conduct. Okay, well, we took this position, but... There is some ground to say that that's correct. Yeah, okay, it's not correct, but there is some ground. So a lot of that's about ascertaining and putting together arguments about why that treatment should have been correct or why they were not reckless in adopting that approach. It could be, look, Division 7A is really complex. What's this UPE stuff? Like we we weren't reckless. We weren't intentionally disregarding the law. We thought we were doing the right thing. And you detail that a bit more, but that's essentially what the process is when you get to that stage when you're disputing penalties. There's dispute, you've got a few different outcomes. You can accept the ATO's position unhappily or happily. The ATO could agree with you and say, okay, well, we think you're correct. We're not going to disturb that assessment. You could reach a settlement position and that will often involve deed of settlement being drawn and the ATO agreeing not to go back and amend assessments, but the taxpayer would need to pay some money. Or it could be an outcome through the AAT or it's actually quite a low percentage of any dispute that actually goes to the AAT or court. In terms of avoiding disputes, I've probably got a few tips. Definitely seeking upfront advice is probably the the biggest one of those. So before doing a large transaction, is it a restructure? Is it a sale of land? Are you moving back to Australia? Are you repatriating funds? Whatever it is, seeking the advice and getting it documented is extremely important. That's important for a number of reasons. One, it could be the treatment that you're proposing is not correct and you could do it another way, or that it is going to trigger some sort of tax. And it can also be important from that penalty mitigation perspective that if if your assessor is taking reasonable care, then the prospect of penalties applying to a tax shortfall are much lower. Maintaining good records. So a lot of times the disputes actually boil down to the evidence, and it can be very difficult for a taxpayer to argue that the tax officer's position is incorrect if they don't have evidence to prove it. One thing we didn't mention is that the onus of proof is always on the taxpayer. So guilty until proven otherwise. Now, it's not to the criminal standard. It's based on a 50-50 standard. But if you don't have evidence, you can't 
say that the ATO's position is wrong. And the ATO are not required to prove their, that, that their position is correct. You're required to establish that the ATO's position is incorrect and you're required to establish what the correct position should be. So it's not enough just to say the ATO is wrong. You need to say what the position should be, like what your income should be, for instance. Really fundamental point because a lot of times the disputes come down to evidence. So it's about maintaining records and, have, and keeping good records in the first place. Seeking private rulings and going through early engagement are really good approaches. As we talked about earlier, my thoughts were you can get a different approach if you're coming forward to the ATO. It could also help resolve a lot of disputes a lot earlier before tax returns are lodged or before positions are even taken sometimes. You can get that certainty. So you could go to the ATO and get a private ruling. They could say, yep, we think that's okay. Then you've got the certainty that as long as that's the correct arrangement, what you've said is the correct arrangement, the ATO are bound by that position. So you've got a bit of certainty that that's going to be correct. Or if the ATO say, well, we don't agree with that, then you at least know much earlier, potentially before you've done whatever the transaction is, and you, you can assess, okay, well, we know that the ATO might have a problem with this. We might do something different. We might not do it at all. Or maybe we'll do it anyway and we think the ATO is still wrong and we can still dispute it. At least you've got that knowledge and, and being proactive and upfront about it lessens the chance of an ugly dispute arising and big penalties arising and this kind of stuff. quite a lot about tax disputes. I suppose the takeaway points are it's best to get in as early as possible. The earlier you're involved, the more that can be done to to try to get a good outcome. Always going to be cognizant of the fact that these transactions have already happened. It's, It's better if you can get involved before the transactions have happened, but it's really about working with the evidence that exists and, and, and assessing whether that position is correct or not. A lot of times it'll be arguing about the facts rather than the law. And there's also a big element of the strategy and how to go forth. Do we go to in-house facilitation? Do we object? What sort of information do we give to the ATO? How do we phrase this argument? All those things come in. And the more time you've got and the more stages, the likelihood of getting a better outcome is higher. So I think from a client's perspective, what they want is this dispute to be resolved as quickly as possible, the least amount of pain in terms of tax and also advisor fees, and to really move on with with their lives. Because when these disputes are sort of hanging over their head, it, it, can, it can be crippling. Like I've seen it destroy families and relationships and just because of the stress and anxiety of, of a dispute, you can see it cripple businesses as well. So it's really about trying to resolve them as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible. Welcome back. So engage early and finish fast. Coming up over the next five episodes is our mini-series about the GST treatment of exports. We will start with the indirect tax zone and incoterms and look at the export of goods and services. And hold on, you will say, haven't we already started that? Didn't we already do something about the indirect tax zone and the export of goods last week? And you're right. Simon Dorovich of ANA Tax Legal Consulting already covered some of that last week. And the reason for this confusion is that this episode you just listened to is out of whack chronologically. Andrew Henshaw had been sick and so we recorded today's episode later than originally scheduled. So that's why the publication date of this episode is out of order. 
But from now on, everything will be back on track. So the next episode we will publish tomorrow is stepping back into our GST mini-series about the export of goods and services with Simon Dorovich. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaas for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>